Well, hey, Romans chapter 2, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we're going to start in verse 25. Be honest with you today. Um, we plan our teaching calendars three, four months in advance typically. Sometimes we think through holidays. Um, so Mother's Day, we talk to mom specifically um, around Christmas. We always do Christmas. But sometimes we're like, you know what? We're just going to teach through the Bible this quarter. And uh, so Father's Day today, I'm glad that you're here because as you're going <laughs> to, I can't make this stuff up. As you're going to see in this section of scripture, the entire thing is about circumcision. And we just teach the Bible at Living Hope and let the cards fall where they may. And so, uh, happy Father's Day. <laughs> Starting in verse 25, Paul writes this. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Thinking, where's this going today? Verse 27, a man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not the letter. And that person's praise is not from people, but from God. Let's pray. God, we love you. Jesus, thanks for your word. God, would you teach us? Teach us today from the scriptures that you would mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus this morning. And God, we, we pray and we beg you that, God, that you would give us open ears to hear from you. Lord, give us that ability to tune in for just a little bit because we need to hear a word from heaven. And God, we don't want to just hear it, but we want that word to implant itself in our hearts, Lord, that you would plant a seed of your word in our hearts that would grow and overflow to obedience as we walk with Jesus the rest of this week. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I got one question for you this morning, and this is not a public participation. Please don't raise your hands or say, me, when's the last time that you got into a serious argument? If you're sitting next to your spouse, you're probably going to get nudged here in just a second, walking on thin ice. But when's the last time you got into a, a serious argument? Maybe it was this week when you got into an argument about something with your spouse or maybe a coworker on the job. If you're a parent, I'm going to go ahead and guess, if your family's like mine, that you probably got into an argument with your kids on the way to church this morning. And all God's parents said, yep, yep, that was us. Well, don't we all do that, though? You argue with your kids, and then you come around the corner onto Village Point, you're like, everybody, shut up! We're at church now. Put your smiles on. Let's just be real. This is just how things work. We get it, right? So in most arguments, what typically happens? You're right, they're right. You guys are going to fight about it. You're going to make a well-thought-out point, or so you think it is. And then the person that you're engaged in that conversation with, that heated debate with, often replies with, I hate these words, but we all hear them, two words. Yeah, but you've made your point, and then they respond with, yeah, but, but, yeah, but, what about this? Yeah, but, here's what I think about the situation. Yeah, but, yeah, but, and we get so frustrated when people say those words. Here in Romans chapter 2, these five verses, this is what I just am going to call the yeah, but section of Romans 2. Because Paul, up to this point, he's answered so many objections 
that these Roman Jews had to this argument of, of Gentile and Jewish salvation. And Paul is just delivering so many things to them. The Jews thought they were superior over the Gentiles. And now we get to this next section of Romans 2, and Paul's anticipating this argument where the Jews are like, yeah, Paul, we understand what you said, but what about this? little review quickly, if you recall in chapter 1, Paul proved up to this point that the Gentiles, all non-Jews, that's you and me, are guilty of sin before God, Romans 1, 18. Scott preached on that several weeks ago, that when we refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all, we stand condemned before God. Then in chapter 2, as we started to dive into that, the Jews likely there in Rome would have been saying something like, yeah, those Gentiles, those Gentile sinners, we're Jews though. We're God's chosen people. Those are just Gentile sinners, and we're different. But as we saw in the early parts of Romans 2, Paul reminds those Jews that whether Jew or Gentile, both of us alike stand guilty of sin before God. Romans 2, verse 3. He told us that Gentiles were guilty because they've disobeyed the moral compass that God had put on their heart. Romans 2, verse 15. The Jews were guilty because they had disobeyed the law or the scriptures that they possessed as God's chosen people. Romans 2, verse 23. Last week, Seth, through his message, taught us that the Jews were boasting in their possession of the law, that we're God's chosen people with God's holy book, but they didn't even obey the law that they were given. Romans 2, 23, it'll be on the screen. Paul said, you who boast in the law, imagine that. We're Jews. We've got God's holy book, the Torah, The law of God, the law of Moses, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Boasting that we have God's scripture in our possession, but blaspheming God because they disobey it. If you haven't figured this out yet, the first several chapters of Romans is heavy. It's a lot about judgment and sin, and it reminds us of our need for a savior. We don't want to gloss over this stuff because if it does anything, I hope it doesn't just draw you down into this depressive state, but I hope it lifts you up to the reality of what Jesus has rescued us from. That's why we preach through books of the Bible, because we want to see that. Now in verse 25 of Romans 2, Paul anticipates another argument from these Jewish readers of this letter. We said this is a literary style known as a diatribe. Write that in the margin of your Bible if you haven't done that already. So he's anticipating what they're going to say to him. And so despite all that Paul has said in chapter 1, the first 24 verses of chapter 2, he anticipates the Jews in Rome going, yeah, but, Paul, we understand what you're saying, we get it, we've read it so far, but, and then this is their argument. They say, yeah, Paul, we understand what you've said, we've read everything, we we understand your argument, but we're circumcised. Paul, we understand what you've said, but we're circumcised. I don't know about you, I'm a 34-year-old living in Midwestern Ohio in the 21st century. The first time that I read their argument of, Paul, we understand what you're saying about judgment and sin, but we're circumcised, I read that and go, that's your argument? (laughs) Like, that's what you're bringing to Paul? We're sinners, we're undergoing judgment, but Paul, we're circumcised. I mean, you almost just want to kind of look at the Jews and go, seriously, that's what you got? Okay, congratulations, you know, good for you. But what's he say here? Paul says, we need to understand, first off, why this was such a big deal to the Jews. Do you guys remember last year, we walked verse by verse through the book of Galatians. 
And in the book of Galatians, we really saw why this act of circumcision was so important to the Jewish people and why it was so important to God. Turn in your Bible if you have one or flip there in your phone to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. I want to show you why this argument was so important to these Jewish people. Why their argument to Paul would have been like, Paul, like we understand what you're saying about sin and judgment and Gentiles. We get all of that stuff. But Paul, we're circumcised. Do you not understand what that actually means? Previous to Genesis chapter 17 and Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, we see the start of the nation of Israel through a man named Abram. He was called to be the patriarch of what would be known as God's covenant people, the Jews, Israel. Genesis chapter 12 says this. It'll be up on our screen starting in verse 1. God makes eight promises to this man, Abram. And here's what he says. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then in verse 2, God starts with uh, five I will statements in the next couple of verses. I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And then here's a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of a Savior that would come through the lineage of Abraham to save all of humanity from their sins. And I will bless all peoples of the earth. I'm sorry, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God takes this man, Abram, who was likely, based on the context of Genesis 12, practicing paganism. He was not a follower of the one true God, Yahweh, but God calls him out into this new path, this new journey to follow him. And the Bible says that Abram Abram believed God in faith and he went, Genesis 12, verse four. So God makes these promises to him. I will do these things through your lineage. And then verse four, what happens? So Abram went as the Lord told him. Man, we could pause there and camp there the rest of the year. When God tells you to do something, what do you do? What God told you to do? How often do we hear what God says, we know what God says, and we sit back and go, man, I don't really know though. I need you to go do this. I don't really know. I want you to obey this. I don't know, I like my way better, Lord. Man, we could learn so much from Abram in this moment. He went as the Lord told him. Then you fast forward five chapters to chapter 17. Several events have passed. God confirms multiple times this covenant that he's entering into with Abram, that through his lineage, Israel, the nation of Israel would be founded, God's chosen people, through Abraham's seed. And even in his old age, this nation would be formed. And then God says as a a sign that you are my people, that you're the ones called out from all nations of this earth to be my chosen people, God says on the eighth day after the birth of your male children, Genesis 17 verse 12, all male children on the eighth day must be circumcised. Why? It was a symbol of a covenant that God was making specifically with these Jewish people. Genesis 17 10, God says, this is my covenant. It's this binding contract between two parties. My covenant between me, that's Yahweh, that's God, the God of Israel, between you, that's Abram, and then also all of your offspring that are going to come next after you, which you are to keep. And then what does he say? Verse 10, every one of your males must be circumcised. This religious ritual that they would engage in that would mark them as God's chosen people. Why circumcision? We think of that and we make a joke about it in the beginning. Ha ha. Why would God want Israel to do this specific thing? 
Let me give you a few things to note here before we get back here into Romans 2. First, understand that in this time period, so like 4,000 B.C., 6,000 years ago, circumcision was not something new. This was something that was practiced by pagan nations that would have been surrounded by Israel. This was not something new to these people. Instead, what God does is He takes this act of circumcision, this practice of circumcision of the males, and He repurposes it for His people. God takes that which is pagan, and He redeems it and makes it holy. He takes that which is pagan, and He says, no, 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 this is no longer a pagan practice. This will be a thing that identifies my people. This is who we are. And if you engage in this under the covenant that I'm making with you, you are now mine. This was so important to God and so important to Israel. Second, it was a sign to a family that when their male children were born and on the eighth day they had to circumcise that child, it was the reminder in the pain of that religious ceremony that God still wanted a relationship with his people and someday it would cost him something. God wanted a relationship with his people. Third, it was meant to be a personal reminder for every male child and every leader of every Jewish home. It would be a personal reminder for them that they were God's people, and they were chosen to be a great nation. And fourthly, and and think about this, and I I don't mean this to sound crude. If this is offensive, you can email Joe this week. I'll just delete it, but you can email Joe. It was a reminder during that ceremony, that religious ritual that they would engage in as a Jewish family. I mean, this was making covenant with God. This was identifying your male children as His and giving them over to Him. That just as flesh would be cut away, that so too, if the Jews did not uphold their covenant with God, that God would cut them off as a people. He tells them that in Genesis 17, verse 14. You don't uphold your covenant with me, I will cut you off from me. It was a reminder for every male head of household that we have to uphold our covenant with God, that this matters and that this is important. To the Jews, it was a big deal. To God, this was a big deal. It was a covenant, and it required obedience and faithfulness to the covenant that God had drawn them into. It wasn't a mechanical ritual for them. It was an expression of faith through obedience. So that was the issue in Romans. So Paul gives us three things rather quickly, starting in verse 25. First, he tells the Jews. So they come back and they're like, yeah, yeah, but Paul, we're, we're circumcised. And Paul starts off and he says, you know what, I, I got to explain a few things to you guys in this, this little section of scripture. He says, uh, I have to make sure you understand the insufficiency of simply knowing the truth. That's point number one, of simply knowing the truth and the insufficiency of that. So he comes after in verse 25, that circumcision, that identity. Look at that again. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. There's a lot of words in there. What is Paul saying there? He says, all right, so you've engaged as a Jew in this act of circumcision. But if you identify as a Jew, and then you don't do what God's law requires of the Jews, then what was the point of of even engaging in the covenant? Like, why, why do it? If you identify as a Jew... And then you don't even follow through on what it means to be a Jew. What's the point? Let's bring it into the 21st century, into the church. How often do people say, you know what? I want to be a Christian. And then we baptize them. And then they just go off and do whatever the heck they want. Paul says, what was the point? I'm going to go ahead and tell you too. Circumcision is a lot more painful than baptism, right? 
Paul says you're, you're letting your families engage in this sacred act, this sacred thing between covenant with God, and then you're just running around doing whatever you want, ignoring what God's law requires of his people. It requires everything. He says, no, 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 if you're going to engage in the covenant, you're obligated to everything that I told you to do. Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul told this to the churches in Galatia. He says, I testify that every man who gets himself circumcised is what? Obligated. That means you are bound to. To do what? To uphold the entire law. You're required because you're one of God's people. And Paul tells the Jews in verse 25, and if you don't, guess what? You're just as guilty as the Gentiles. Friends, a few thoughts regarding this. Um, I think important. I would jot these down if you're a note taker. First, rituals don't save. Jesus saves. Make sure we understand that, that the act of circumcision didn't save the Jews. It had to be accompanied by a heart change. This wasn't new information for them. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 10, 16. He said, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. The act of circumcision was meant to represent and signify an eternal, internal life change, a life surrendered to God. Again, New Testament equivalent is what? It's baptism. When we baptize people here at this church and we put them under that water, our pastor and Mary's we used to say, there's nothing special about the water. Here, it's just Powell City water. It's really disgusting, actually. The, the, the reality of going under that water doesn't save you. What saves you? It's the internal decision to repent of sin and follow Jesus. That's just the symbolic act so that other people know, and that's a marker in the ground for you, that you've made covenant with God. The same thing was with circumcision. You know, we're not, we're not Jews, so we have to draw application from this stuff. Uh, last week, Seth mentioned this verse in Romans 15, verse 4, where it said, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scripture. So there's going to be some things we read in the New Testament that was written specifically to the Jewish people. We don't practice this as a religious body on the eighth day when you all have babies that you got to get them circumcised in order to be in a covenant relationship with God. That's not what we do anymore. We're under New Testament. We're under grace. We say that when you're saved, you get baptized. That's the covenant symbol for us that we've entered into a relationship with God. But let me emphasize this over and over and over because no matter how much we say it, people still get confused. Religious rituals do not save you. We on the same page there? Baptism doesn't save you. If I ask you when you gave your life to Jesus, don't tell me when you were baptized. Tell me when you repented of sin and you gave your life to Jesus. Baptism is the symbol of that. Coming to church doesn't save you. I'm so glad y'all are here this morning, but this won't get you into heaven. You're not going to knock on the pearly gates and Peter will say, why should you be here? And you say, dude, I was at Living Hope last week. He's going to say, where's that? You know? It doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. Like, well, I religiously attend life group. It doesn't matter. Those are not the things that save you. If we engage in those things, but our hearts have never been surrendered to Jesus, what's the point? We're just making ourselves comfortable and religious on our way to hell. We, we have to have Jesus saves. Now, do we engage in those things? Absolutely. Why do we get baptized? Because I've given my life to Jesus. Why do I engage in church attendance? Because I've given my life to Jesus. Why do I participate in a life group? Because I've given my life to Jesus. It's the overflow of an internal decision that I've made. But make sure that your religious activity is not the thing that saves you and doesn't undercut the work of Jesus. Jesus saves. And if your obedience to him should then overflow to these other religious things. They're evidences of an internal decision that you've made. It's not enough to simply know the truth. It's not going to get you anywhere. 
You've got to do something with the truth that you know. Here's the second thing that Paul tells him. He talks about applying the truth of God in verse 26 and the impossibility of that. Because in verses 26 and 7, we're introduced to a hypothetical person, a guy that doesn't exist, this Gentile man. And look at what Paul says about him. He says in verse 26, the first part, so if an uncircumcised man, that's that's just a Gentile. If, If you need help in your Bible, just write the word Gentile right above uncircumcised man. If an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements. So here's, here's Paul's hypothetical guy. We're going to call him, uh, what's a Jewish name? Stephen, I guess. I don't know. I didn't write that in my notes. So Stephen, all right? Stephen the Gentile. Here we go. So Stephen's a Gentile man. He's a non-Jew. And Paul says, Stephen keeps the law perfectly. He, he does what God requires in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, um, to the T. Of all God's requirements, he's kept them perfectly. Side note here, that's impossible. We're on the same page there. If you could keep God's law perfectly, you wouldn't need Jesus, but you do. James talks about that in James 2, verse 10. He said, whoever keeps the entire law, yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of it all. So the inference there by James is this, that you can't keep God's requirement, but Paul's just given us a, a hypothetical situation here. So he says, our Gentile man, Stephen, has kept all that God prescribes. And now look at his question. Verse 26b, will not his uncircumcision, because he's not a Jew, so he's never entered into that covenant thing with God like the Jews do, won't it be counted as circumcision? What's, what's Paul writing here? This can be pretty confusing, confusing stuff. Paul says, if Gentile Stephen obeys the law perfectly, wouldn't he be considered right with God? Yeah. Yeah. If he had the ability to do it on his own, then yes, he would be considered right with God. What's Paul trying to show the Jews here? He says, your religious rituals, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to echo this from the rooftops to the walls shake. Your religious rituals do not save you. They can't because we can't keep God's law perfectly. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus. We're on the same page there. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. Look at verse 27. A man who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the entire law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. Paul says, Jews, I understand you got your religious stuff going on and you think that makes you superior, but if we did have a Gentile guy that could keep the law perfectly, he would be more right with God than you ever could through your religious practices and your rituals. He says, what good, Seth drove this home last week, what good is having the law of the Lord if you do nothing with it? And what do the Jews say? Yeah, but we're circumcised. And what does Paul say? Who cares? Who cares? Your religious efforts mean nothing if you're actually not right with God. So let's apply it to ourselves this morning. Golly, this will cut deep. It cut me this week. What good is it to have the possession of this book, my friends, if we do nothing with it? We have this book more accessible than any generation in the past 2,000 years. And what good is it if we do nothing with it? You can pull this up on your phone. You can have so many people these days. I know in my office right now, I got over 12 copies of this book. I can pull up any version in any language on my phone in under 20 seconds. What good is it if we have the book and we do nothing with it? 
Y'all, if I'm honest with myself, this is what I wrote down this week, and this is to me, and I hope it speaks to you. I've gotten too comfortable with serving a version of God that lets me do what I want, when I want, how I want, and I'll obey the scriptures when it's convenient for me. I'll obey the scriptures when it's convenient for me. And Paul says, you've got access to what God requires of you, yet you choose to walk in disobedience. Aaron, what good was your baptism? Why does it matter? You've got access to God's word, yet, yet you choose to walk in disobedience, but you go to church occasionally. God's not applauding that. You've got access to God's book, but you attend a life group religiously, but you're still walking in disobedience. God is not applauding that. What does he want from us? Obedient hearts surrendered to what he requires of us in his word. Because what good is outward religious activity if there's never been an inward heart change that changes how I live? I can't tell I'm a little passionate about this. Let's not forget to. This is what's so cool about Christianity. We try to obey this book, and you know what we do? We screw up. We screw up. In comes Jesus. We don't serve a God who says, here's what I require of you, and then when you screw it up, you're out of luck. What do we do? We serve a God who says, here's what I require of you. I want you to walk in obedience, but when you screw up, I'll make up the difference. I'll make up the difference for you. I'll make up the difference for where you fall short. It's the work of Jesus. So Paul tells us, what good is it to know the truth if you don't do anything with it? What good is it if you're not going to apply the truth? And he gives us the solution in verses 28 and 29. Man, this is going to point to Christ so much. We have to surrender to the truth, and his name is Jesus. We have to surrender to the truth, and his name is Jesus. Verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly, but true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. So what's he say? That covenant with God that the Jews are emphasizing in circumcision is not something that you just do in the physical. If it's only in the physical, it doesn't matter. He says it's a spiritual act that has to take place. True circumcision, spiritual circumcision, I've said that word a lot today, is, is this thing that has to take place on the inside of you. It's not just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing of what? When we choose to repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, and then Jesus changes our heart. Romans 2 verse 29 says this, on the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision of the heart is by the spirit, not of the letter. So Paul's whole emphasis here as we land this plane, a Jew is not a Jew because they're circumcised. A Jew is a Jew because they made the decision to put their faith in God walk in obedience to him, and the sign of that was they then chose circumcision. They were going to raise their children up in that. For the New Testament, what is it for us? It's that we repent of sin. We put our faith in Jesus, and now as a result of that, what do I do? I get baptized. I attend church. I engage in Christian community. I do all of these things. Why? Because I've given my life to Jesus, and he overflows from me. It's the evidence of the Spirit of God residing in you. Joe reminded me of this verse in Romans 8 this week, verse 16, that the Spirit of God testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, that we, when we repent of sin, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts, and now we overflow in obedience. We want to honor God. One of the most oxymoron things in the world is a person that claims Christ and walks in disobedience. It's an impossibility. You can't do it. I, I, I preached at a youth uh, conference two weeks ago, and we came out of John chapter 15. You guys remember John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches? I gave them this goofy illustration, but they all remembered it for some reason. I said, hold your arm up like this. This is the vine. A couple of you are doing it. You don't have to. 
This is the vine. Some of you are like, man, this guy's got huge biceps. It's true. (laughs) This is the vine, Jesus says, Romans 15. And that's Jesus in this illustration he gives. He says, and off that vine are these these branches that come off. That's you and me. Where the work of the Spirit is this, is he he grafts us into this vine where we become part of the family. We become part of the family of God. We're grafted into this. And as a result, so that's the person that's repented of sin, put their faith in Jesus. I'm grafted into this vine. I'm connected to Jesus. If I'm connected, let's say that this vine that is Jesus, I got a blueberry bush at my house now. It's incredible, by the way, if you need blueberries. I got this blueberry bush. And if I got a vine connected to that main blueberry vine, what, this is kindergarten level stuff, what fruit should come off of that vine? Blueberries. This is real simple. Jesus didn't make it complicated for us. Blueberries. If I got an apple tree, what comes off the apple tree branches? Apples, not a trick question, right? We can do any fruit. But if I got an apple tree and coming off that vine is blueberries, there's a problem, yeah? Jesus tells us through, through Paul here in Romans 2 that if you're identifying yourself with Christ and the Spirit of God has done the spiritual circumcision in you, that the overflow from you should be obedience. And if it's disobedience, hear me, you should start to ask the, oh gosh, you should start to ask the question, am I actually connected to the vine? Because if what overflows from me is not Jesus, then how can I say I'm connected to him? God help us there. Paul says we want to honor God. He says that in verse 29. A person's praise is not from people, it's from God. God doesn't want a religion that impresses us. He wants us to, to honor him like with our obedience. Who, who cares what other people say about me? Who cares if we have to walk countercultural? Uh, I, I want to walk with Jesus, and I want him to overflow from me in everything that I do. We're closing with this. Every part of Romans 2 has been, I can't make my own way to God. My efforts are futile. I can't keep his standard. Religious activity doesn't impress him. I need Jesus. Friends, and I hope we've seen that in this, this, this chapter so far. We need Jesus so bad that we're sinners and we're, we're undergoing judgment, but Jesus is a great Savior, right? That's, that's the bad news. What's the bad news is that we're sinners. What's the worst news is that we're undergoing judgment. What's the good news? Jesus came after you so you don't have to undergo judgment. What's the best news? He offers you salvation today. He, he, he pleads with us every, every day that if you've never given your life to Christ and repented of your sin and been grafted into the family of God, that it happens through just simple act of, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I'm awaiting your judgment, but Father, would you please forgive me and draw me into your family? And on the authority of God's word, he does every time. Bad news, worse news, good news, great news. It's the great news of the gospel. Can I pray for us as the praise team comes? Lord, we love you. God, in the midst of the heaviness that can be Romans 2, Lord, I pray that our eyes would become fixated on Jesus. God, knowing, and that's where Paul has driven our hearts in this, these first two chapters of Romans, knowing, Lord, that apart from Christ, we are, we are hopeless. But in Christ, we can be hopeful yet again. Apart from Jesus, God, we have no future, but in Christ, we have a future and a hope and a place called heaven with, with the Lord. So God, I pray now is that as we, as we sing, God, would your spirit, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, Would your spirit that dwells inside of us do a refining work in our hearts? God, drawing out any areas of disobedience that maybe we're currently walking in, 
And God, in that, I pray in this moment, Lord, myself included, that we would simply, uh, in, in our seats, Lord, just, just repent of that to you. As your word says in 1 John 1, 9, that you're faithful and just, that you'll forgive us of our sins and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Lord. We can be made whole again. And God, for any of my friends that maybe don't know Jesus as their Savior, that God, in this moment, Lord, as we're singing praises to you, to Lord, that wherever they are, they'd repent of that sin, Lord, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Because apart from Jesus, God, we are hopeless. But in Christ, our sins can be forgiven. We can become a people of purpose and hope yet again and have an eternity awaiting in heaven for us. God, I pray as we sing that it would be a sweet sound that you and only you deserve as we join the chorus of the angels in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.